Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm a simple man. Don't need much. The only thing I ask for from time to time is a cold beer and a nice, big, beautiful pair of boobs to rub my face in. But sometimes, life as a midnight rider gets lonely. And the moon gets light and the wolves are howling through the hills. I put on my Bro History podcast the best goddamn podcast in the world. They talk about history, culture, geopolitics, everything that you'd want to talk about in this lonely, lonely world. Make sure you like and subscribe it or just go on the win. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdeljbar. Danny, how are you? I'm chilling as per usual. Uh, that was an interesting start to the show. <laughs> yeah, that kind of happened out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, what's up, man? We're recording this on June 30th, so it's Thursday. So we'll, we'll be going into July tomorrow. And this episode's going to be released... Um, Around 4th of July, so happy 4th of July if you're listening to this. Happy 4th. Danny, what's your plan for July 4th? How are you celebrating the birthday Um, of this country? Well, uh, I guess technically I am still in this country. Uh, I will be chilling. I don't know. I don't don't know what Puerto Ricans do for 4th of July. I'm going to have to figure it out. But I don't have any plans, so. Beach maybe? I don't know. (laughs) How about you? That's a real... That's a real bummer. Um, so, no, I actually don't have any plans either. I think I'm going <laughs> to the beach as well, but nothing nothing formal on the books. I think what I will be doing, though, like what I'm, what I'm preparing to do this weekend is the new episodes of Stranger Things are coming on tomorrow. Ooh. So I'm going to prioritize watching that. Um, so that's what, that's what I, that's like what I'm looking forward to over this weekend. Now... Before we get into it, so today's episode, we will be talking about the Spanish-American War, but I think we should tie a bow in this because we've been talking about Turkey for the past two weeks. And a couple of days ago, Turkey said that they're going to allow or they're going to um, vote yes on Finland and Sweden's NATO membership, their bid to, to uh, their expedited bid to NATO membership. At first, they were they threatened to block Finland and Sweden's uh, uh, expedited entrance into NATO, but now they have agreed, or at least Turkey, the, the Erdogan, 
has agreed to uh, to vote yes on this. And in return, basically, Finland and Sweden have to sell out the Kurds. Well, I feel like we saw this coming. <laughs> yeah. Talked we, about it at we, length the first time around. <laughs> hey, man, the guy's a pretty skilled negotiator. He actually got a lot. It seems like he's going to get a lot out of this. And it's not, you know, the ink's not dry yet Yeah, on this, or it's not, they haven't signed it yet. Apparently, uh, Erdogan has said that you have to extradite these uh, people on the terror list who currently reside in, in Finland and Sweden. I think there's about 33 different pe- 33 people and they have to extradite these uh, these people back to Turkey so they can put them in jail. And he threatened if they don't do that, he's like, there's nothing I can do. Maybe my part, maybe our parliament won't vote on it. We have to put this through parliament. So you better send these people quick if you really are serious about joining NATO. Hmm. And then yesterday, um, Biden announced that Turkey will be uh, will be getting F-16s. And I think that was a big, big F-16s, plus. not F-35s? <laughs> no, F-16s. Okay. Not F-35s. Well, so they're going to get their Kurds. They're going to get their guns in the form of airplanes. Uh, what else are they getting? Are they going to get the green light on invading uh, Syria again? I think that's in the works. I don't think they need a green light. I think they'll just do it, to be completely honest. Who's going to stop them? Well, they got a bunch now, of new planes to, to use, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the only people that can stop them are the Russians. Speaking of the Russians. And speaking of the Russians, and, um, you know, I, I don't think Russia's really said that much about this yet. But, you know, I don't think Russia really cares that much. Like, I don't think... It's kind of funny because Finland made some type of uh, they they said they're going to build a wall across the Russian and Finnish border, like full full Trump style. They're putting up a wall on the border between Finland and Russia. And hey, I don't know, maybe maybe just do that. Like I maybe that's a solution to this. Just Isn't that like equivalent wall. to like fucking like the north in game of thrones like what are they gonna build a giant ice wall like isn't it like basically siberia like times 10 because it's higher that's how that's how i imagine it you know before world war ii before like the 50s finland was like the backwater was a backwater of europe and their economy really grew because they were like that weird neutral zone uh between the west and and the east where you could actually you know, do commerce between, you know, the the Western countries, the NATO-aligned countries, and the Soviet bloc states, because they they were in this weird neutral spot. And they really benefited from that. So, I mean, they're losing that neutrality, but let's just be honest. I mean, they, Finland and Sweden were were already de facto NATO countries anyway. They were NATO-adjacent. Yeah, yeah, they're they're as much as NATO as you possibly could be, and the chances of Russia invading Finland are almost zero. You know, the case is, you know, now people are like, well, this opens up the case for Ukraine to join NATO again. Like they're going to get reviewed membership. Like what? Well, I mean, you know, disputed. Can you not tell the differences? Yeah. Can, can we not? 
just state the obvious differences between Finland and Ukraine. Right. Like there's there was a, there was a, a active border dispute going on in Ukraine and Russia. Um, so I don't really think this makes a big deal. What to, I find uh, what I find so ironic about this whole situation is that Russia, you know, among many other reasons, goes to war in Ukraine to halt you know nato expansion and it resulted in nato and like de facto nato expansion not like you know obviously to your point like they sweden and finland were just as much nato as you possibly could be without being nato but you know this kind of cemented it a little bit and you know sweden and finland are kind of choosing to join nato because well you know they're afraid that maybe russia invades them so like what if now Russia decides to invade them. I don't know. Like it's it's like a bunch of like weird steps um, and ironies in all of this. And I'm I'm wondering how Turkey fits into this uh, particular analogy. Like, well, I think Turkey just like what can we get out of this? <laughs> Finland and profit? Sweden, yeah. Like we're we're in a position to to uh, to profit off this because we are kind of like the most neutral party in Europe and a negotiated peace is most likely going to take it's going to happen in Istanbul but i think the main reason why Sweden and Turkey or excuse me Sweden and Finland are choosing to finally join NATO is because they were going to up their defense budgets anyway in this way they only have to um to uh up their uh i guess up to 2% GDP on on defense spending so I think that's most likely why, the, the, at least the, at the very least, the economic reason they, they figure they could save some money on defense spending. And um, I mean, I get why not? I mean, I think if you ask most people like, hey, are Finland and Sweden and NATO people, most people would say, yeah, aren't they? But you'd have to think about it. I um, mean, I, I can't name all the NATO countries off the top of my head. I consistently have to google to remember which ones are in and which ones aren't so it would make more sense if if they were in nato than lithuania you're like well you're like why the hell is lithuania in nato well because it cuts off uh, kaliningrad i'm i'm just saying for the average person you're just like why the hell is lithuania nato which i don't i don't even want to open up that can of worms because we won't get to the topic at hand but um yeah i guess we'll I guess we will see what we'll keep uh, watching it. What we'll keep watching it. Okay, Spanish American War. Let's get to the history. And um, I know you know you handled most of kind of like the organization of this show. So I'm just going to give my two cents about this war, and we can dive in, dive from there if you don't mind. Sure, go for it. So th- the way. I think there's a lot of different ways that you can look at the Spanish-American War. And one of the ways is that, man, there's a lot of things. But I think there's one way to look at this as like the first time or the beginning of the United States as an imperial power or as a global power. Okay, sure. Another way to look at this is in this kind of poetic way where you have a clash between the rising power and then the you know the shell of its former self you know the old spanish empire is basically 
gone at this point. So you have the rising power, and then you have a sick man of Europe. So that's another way to look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, another way to look at it is this was America um, kind of completing its nationalist project of creating like this one united nation after the Civil War where there was a process of transforming from the United States are to the United States is. Do you know what I mean? So mm. the United States as a collection of states before the Civil War to now the United States as, you know, one nation state. You know, we just finished wrapping up the the Indian Wars. We just marched all the way. You know, we, we made, um, I think Wyoming was the last state right i might be wrong about that but we just wrapped up um you know basically conquering the indians and and, and claiming all of that land and, and completing the our our uh our western expansion now it's time to like bend the political cleavages from the civil war and um you know get together for this this um this global war to kind of mend those wounds so i think that's another way that you can look at it and and these are just kind of theories that or or um perspectives rather you know they're not entirely accurate but i mean you did most of the research on this and and and, and, uh definitely know more than i do so what would you say just as your beginning thesis well i I think when when we initially wanted to start talking about the Spanish-American War, the, the thing that interested me the most is the concept of yellow journalism, uh, which we're not really going to touch too much in this episode. But just to give you a high level, yellow journalism was a period, you know, in you know United States journalism where you know the press really got involved in the war efforts and primarily through the spread of disinformation and propaganda and exaggerations, but also in the mix, a lot of truths. This was kind of the start of that, at least from the yellow journalism perspective. And so I set out to try and figure out like, all right, well, does this theory have legs? Did we really get pulled into a war with Spain because the media and- For the clicks. For the clicks. I'd like to say pretty strongly no at this point. And that's just what I learned, and I'll give give away the ba- baby with the bathwater on that one. I don't well, think that. Go ahead. Well, well, let's just give some context to the time. So we're talking about the 1890s. You have two right. media moguls who are who are dominating the um, the newspaper or magazine industry mm-hmm. in Joseph Pulitzer, and then you have. Um, um, William Randolph Hearst. I always his name always escapes me. Uh, who right. owned the New York Journal, and this was also the age of the of the Telegraph. So mm-hmm. you didn't. You no longer had to you know wait a couple of days to get news stories. You were able to uh, essentially relay information via Telegraph instantly. So you'd be able to give daily updates on the war. Right. So um, it was um, um, Hearst who said, who famously said something along the lines of, "Well, the backstories he sent over a dispatch of journalists 
to report on the rebellion in Cuba against the Spanish. And, um, you know, after a while, this reporter got bored and he told Hearst that he, you know, there was really nothing going on here and that he wanted to come back and, that, you know, there was nothing to report. There really was no action or war going on. And then he famously replies back, um, you need to stay. You just furnish the pictures and I'll furnish the war, which is like right. a very That's famous quote mm-hmm. um, right. when you're talking about like media instigating the war um it it comes Mm -hmm. from it comes from this era so what it's it's been described as and other historians have called this as self-activated journalism so the way that hearst would would selfly or himself would describe this would be not waiting for things to happen and becoming the news in itself like becoming an active participant in the news so uh, getting get, essentially getting shit done and you know that is a way that modern media does work but you're saying that and and um, i don't want to kind of take your where i think you're going with this is that the united states and the spanish regardless if there was yellow journalism or if there were uh, forces in the media trying to instigate the war the geopolitical realities were going to inevitably lead to a war anyway. Is that kind of where you're getting you at? Got it. You got okay. it. Yeah. And, and 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 I and I and I agree and I and I do actually agree with that. I, I I do agree with that. But I think it's worth exploring that in greater detail and going over the history. So I started from yellow journalism, and I I just like worked my way back, and I'm like, all right, well, so papers are printing some shit that's crazy. You know, did that lead us to war? And then I'm like, all right, well, I read something that tipped me off to the fact that, you know, the, the geopolitical realities, as you said, were kind of pointing the U.S. And, and Spain into war anyway. And so I started to just keep, you know, take it one step back, take it one step back. And, well, I ended up in the early 1800s. And I think, you know, before we can really start talking about the Spanish-American War, I think it's kind of important to talk about some Spanish history because I think it gives context into a lot of things. So way back in the early 1800s, there was this war in the Iberian Peninsula, which, you know, if you look at it on the map, it's just like the little jut out of Spain and Portugal. And I'm going to breeze over the specifics uh, of this particular war uh, for time's sake, but uh, high level, um, Spain joins uh, with Napoleon in 1807, and basically they decide to invade and occupy Portugal. A year later, uh, Napoleon turns on Spain and basically occupies Spain. And what he does is he forces the king, uh, the the current king, King Ferdinand IV, um, to abdicate the throne, and he installs his brother, Joseph Bonaparte, as king of Spain. That's something I didn't know before. And it was pretty interesting. Um, But obviously Spain and the Spanish people, I say Spanish a lot. Um, Spain and the Spanish people weren't having it. And they form a type of like governmental administration called a junta. Uh, I'll talk more about that later. But they, they make a thing called a junta. And they basically start a bloody war, a guerrilla style war uh, between the Spanish and the French Empire. And then later... Portugal and the UK end up joining in with this with the Spanish people to fight 
Napoleon. So it kind of like flips a little bit, right? Spain occupying Portugal. Spain gets backstabbed by France. Spanish people, guerrilla warfare against France. Portugal and the UK join the fight. Kind of crazy. Can I interrupt you for one moment? Of course. So is that where the word junta comes from? That is where the word junta comes from. You'll hear that a lot today. Actually, the more the more you know. I always wondered where the 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 term military junta came from, and now yeah. I learned. There you go. Um, so that war lasts until 1814, and you know, at pretty much the same time that this is going on, the former Spanish colonies in Latin America take that opportunity that's given to them by you know the fact that the Spanish monarchy had crumbled. Uh, to also create their own juntas. There's that word again. <laughs> and these juntas and the political operatives that made them were pretty split on the topic of, you know, should we stay unified under Spain or should we be totally sovereign from it? But generally speaking, they all kind of adopted these liberal ideologies and you know, basically wanted more freedom than what they had in general. Like no matter how it came about, that's what they that's what they were all about. And so the Spanish Cortes of Cadiz, which is kind of like a, a Spanish parliament um, that popped into the mix during the Napoleonic occupation, um, as well as a, a lot of these other um, juntas from Latin America, they end up uh, ag- agreeing on a lot of things and they recognize. Ferdinand, you know, the one that got uh, deposed, as the king um, under a new type of government that they were throwing around called popular sovereignty. So popular sovereignty is a lot like democracy where, you know, the authority of the state and its government are given by the consent of its people. And that is usually through elected representatives. So they're supporting Ferdinand. Guerrilla war is happening. UK and Portugal are helping, right? Uh, and after Napoleon lost the war, Ferdinand comes back into the picture. And would you guess what happens next? They go to war. <laughs> Basically. I mean, he Ferdinand does a coup and reinstates absolute monarchy in Spain, which obviously doesn't sit super well with a lot of people, especially people in Latin America. And so in 1820, the Spanish army revolted against the king and won. And this ended that threat of absolutism, but it didn't really change Spain's position on separat- on the separatism of Latin America. Like they still wanted to hold on to sovereignty over their colonies. See, the the Spanish elites in Spain at the time, they argued that their particular flavor of colonialism was like the good kind. Like they were just spreading civilization <laughs> through Christianity. Well, that's everyone made that argument. Yeah. Well, they were especially keen on on sticking to it, and they were saying things like, "Oh, we have a shared culture and language with their, you know, with these colonies," and you know, and, and in theory, that should mean that the colonies should stay a part of Spain. It was a, it was a really weird argument, and I feel like, you know. Crumbling empires always hang on to this type of argument, as you say. And in the Spanish, though, unlike other colonial powers, they really mixed into the indigenous populations. Well, 
more so than much, the British I'd, and the French. I'd argue they did a much better job at assimilating native populations. They were still pretty fucking bad, right? They oh, no, no. I'm not saying people. they weren't brutal. <laughs> yeah. I'm not at all saying they weren't brutal. I'm just saying that, like, you had more families from... Yeah. I mean, I think I think colonies. they definitely shared a lot. They shared a lot. You know, they 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 even though subjects of the colonies were less than citizens of Spain, they did a pretty good job at like including them in the culture, um, for sure. You know, and, and making them feel like, oh, you're Spanish, not fully Spanish, but you're you're definitely Spanish. You know, um, I think they did an okay job at that. But there's still terrible things that they did along just colonialism, generally speaking, and so. Obviously, this type of argument ignores the obvious, which was the systemic annihilation of the indigenous peoples, their culture, their languages. It also ignored, just generally speaking, the rampant exploitation of the colonies for their natural resources and the cheap labor, you know. But other than that, yeah, totally good colonialism, you know. So, I mean, at this point, the idea of fully maintaining the status quo of Spain over the colonies obviously was super alienating to those folks down in the Latin American countries because, you know, for a short time, they had a pretty good thing going with this idea of popular sovereignty and they started developing nationalism and, you know, kind of working towards the idea of like, we, okay, we can, we can be in the club, but like, we want to do our own thing. And what happened as a result of Spain's, you know, ignorance frankly, is that it kicked off several wars of independence in Latin America. And this was pretty widespread until all but Cuba and Puerto Rico were left under Spanish control. And things get a little bit juicier here because just a few late, a few years later, from 1833 to 1877, there's a total of three civil wars that broke out in Spain, and they're known as the Carlist Wars. Now, just... To make things easier, I'm going to be super sparse on details here, but high-level uh, Ferdinand, homeboy who, you know, did a coup and uh, reinstated uh, um, absolute monarchy, he dies in 1833, and he left his wife, Maria Cristina, as like the queen regent over his heir, who was a two-year-old, and her name was Queen Isabella II. Now... Super Games, Game of Thrones is here. Uh, Ferdinand's brother, Infante Carlos, so he thought he should be the king, right? Because why, you know, why is this two-year-old the queen? I'm the brother. I should be the king. And obviously people who favored Carlos were called the Carlists, and that's where the name of the wars come from. And people who favored Isabella's mother, the Christina, were known as the Cristinos. So we got the Carlists and the Cristinos, and they're having some wars. Three of them. Um, and the, the basic rift between these two political ideologies was basically religious monar monarchism, so that that was the folks under the Carlists, and liberalism, the folks under the Cristinos. And I think it's easy to imagine the state that Spain was in in the years leading up to the Spanish-American War when you think of it from all the things that I just described. Because in less than 100 years, it had seen several major wars, the fall of their monarchy, the development of nationalism, a coup, a resurgence of monarchy, the loss of most of its colonies, and then several civil wars in less than 100 years. 
And all of these factors substantially crippled the Spanish Empire. And and it made, you know, when we're thinking about the Spanish-American War, it, it really made the loss of the Spanish-American War all but inevitable. But it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, that, that's not the reason why the war itself was inevitable. It's just the reason why they would have lost. Well, I mean, so... Spain's in a state where they lost all their, basically all of their colonial possessions, besides some of the most important ones, and and um, Puerto Rico and Cuba. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Cuba being extremely important. Yep, that was the However, flagship. however, there's multiple. You know, there's multiple regime changes going on towards the latter years. Um, you know, not only in the early 1800s, but there's like a switch from like a monarchy to a parliamentary system back to like a um, uh, a constitutional monarchy towards the end. So they're going through multiple uh, shifts in their government and um, they're, you know, they're, they're losing world influence. And I think from the U.S.'s point of view is that the United States is, is basically expanding. And I know you're going to jump into this. At this time, the U.S. is expanding. They've, you know, they we we wrapped up the Indian Wars. When you look at Cuba, Cuba kind of looks like you could imagine a map where Cuba is a state of the U.S. Sure, we were talking about this, yeah, not so long ago, where it almost seems like Cuba should be part of the U.S. It's only about ninety miles off the coast of Florida. Yep. Um, yeah, that's, at its that's... most northern tip, where I don't know exactly what tip cuba is closest to at florida but it's you can get there on a boat on a what they say call a you know a raft or a banana boat or whatever you're able right. to to migrate there quite easily and it just the way it's centered it's just it's so strategically important it's a pretty big island mm-hmm. cuba very like just the, like well. the sheer size of it it's about the size of florida in itself Mm-hmm. So, it it you sometimes when I look at a map of Cuba, I'm kind of like, man, they just stopped and the they the old people who are in charge of the government just kind of stopped conquering. Like, why didn't they conquer that part of the world too? Like, <laughs> well, they like certainly it tried. Part of it seems <laughs> like it should have been part of America. Like, so it. it I'll give you a spoiler. It, I don't. I don't think it was. was the, the thought definitely crossed some people's mind. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, um, I think a lot of people. I think a lot of people were just like, "Yeah, eventually Cuba's going to become a state or something like that." Mm-hmm. But I think the fear was, and more so, and, and you can you know disagree or, or 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 add some perspective to this is that I think that the United States was not so much worried about Spain as a rival. They were more worried about, like, let's just say if the Spanish government topples and they lose a war to to the British or they lose a war to Russia or they lose a war to the French. Well, now we have like a real power right on our doorstep and they just inherited a extremely profitable colony that's really big. And this is a legitimate national uh national security interest for us. Sure. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. 
On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. So and that's that's definitely that definitely plays a part in it. But let's let's pull back some because I think sure. we, we should talk about some American pre-war history because I, I I also think that gives a lot of context to you know, the, the immediate years leading up to the Cuban um, uh, revolution and ultimately the Spanish-American War. Um, and I think you're right. You know, a lot of the things you're saying, you know, are huge, huge factors in in bringing the United States and Spain to war. But, you know, pulling it way back, like I, I, what I found so interesting about researching the Spanish history side of the episode was just remembering how young of a country the U.S. was at the time. I mean, we were just talking about Napoleon. When Napoleon took power in 1799, the U.S. was just on its second president, John Adams, right? At, at that time, the U.S. was trying to work out an, an end to this awkward, like undeclared kind of war relationship with France. And it was called like the quasi-war, or some people call it the half-war very, very little known part of history. Like we were kind of beefing with them at the same time. Um, and so Napoleon and the UK, you know, they're obviously, you know, fighting. They, they had briefly ended a decade long conflict in 1802. And Napoleon turns his focus briefly away from Europe and tries to put down a revolution that was going on in Haiti. I'm not going to go into that war. If that's interesting, maybe for another episode, but let's just say, it doesn't go so well for them. They got spanked. So at the same time, Spain and France were allies. Remember back in the Peninsular Wars? So Spain had, at this time, control of the Louisiana Territory and eventually gives it back to France. And that caused some tensions with the U.S. because the U.S. was afraid that Napoleon 
would want to control the Mississippi River and also the access to the Gulf of Mexico, which is obviously strategically important for, you know, the new U.S. nation. So the then third president, Thomas Jefferson, he sends Robert Livingston, uh, who was the U.S. minister to France at the time. And later, he also sends the fourth president, the future fourth president, that is, um, President Monroe, to, to go to France to work out a deal to solve this, right? Because this is, this is like weird, you know, it's just an awkward situation that they wanted to get rid of. And so what they proposed, and to the U.S. surprise, uh, they closed a pretty sweet deal relatively quickly. I mean, in 1802, the U.S. paid France $15 million in then money which translates to $323 million in today money, if you adjust it for inflation, that is. And they got a whopping total of 828,000 square miles of land. That's three cents an acre. The Louisiana Purchase, <laughs> which is a fucking crazy-ass deal no matter how you slice it. That is just, just think about that for a minute. That was a yeah, and then- deal. Yeah, and, and the French were kind of forced to sell it. Well, Napoleon was kind of forced to sell sell it because, um, you know, I guess after Haiti, they realized that putting down revolutions in the Western Hemisphere wasn't going to be that easy, and they yeah. were already starting a war with... They were in the war with the British Empire at the same time, and I guess... Fighting a multi-front war in Europe in the Western Hemisphere wasn't going to work out, so you might as well just give up the, just just give this territory up. And so it really did seem like it was, in his mind, it was going to cause more problems than uh, than actually, uh, you know, fix. It was going to sure. it was going to cause more problems than add value. For sure. I mean, you're you're absolutely right. Like. Their inability to put down the Haitian Revolution, in addition to signaling to them like, hey, maybe this is a bad idea, like, you know, trying to put down revolutions in the West. Um, it it also made it strategically difficult to just def- maintain and defend the Louisiana territory. And like you said, you know, they're, they're in multi-wars. So they're, you know, they, they, at the time they were at peace with the UK, but they, the, the relationship was already starting to sour um, after that pause on hostilities and and napoleon was definitely um you know uh afraid of a potential british naval blockade which ended up being true uh you know the next year in 1802 britain declared war on france and did a blockade um and also france was just broke at the time you know they had been in decades of war and napoleon wasn't slowing down his conquest of europe so they just straight up needed the cash and, you know, you can ask, like, all right, why are we talking about Napoleon? You know, what does this have to do with the Spanish-American War? Fair point. But the reason why I'm talking about all of this is because what it what this time period develops is an important shift in U.S. foreign policy that becomes kind of the political backdrop for getting into a war with Spain. So after we got the Louisiana Purchase, the U.S. was pretty isolationist. They were basically trying to mind their own business, explore their new territory, do their own thing, right? They had Indians to kill, right? Um, but the British were imposing what's called, uh, I'm going to get this word wrong, impressment 
I wrote impressionism like a thousand times. It's impressment. Uh, and what this means is they were seizing British-born naturalized U.S. citizens to fight in the British Navy against France. So that's what impressment is. And, you know, that's not cool. Jefferson wasn't having it. And he sent Monroe again uh, to the U.K. this time to, like, negotiate. But Monroe came back basically empty-handed, so it never went anywhere. So from 1806 to 1807, Napoleon and the British went back and forth with, you know, embargoes and blockades on each other. And this is important because it impacted trade in the U.S. So Jefferson tries and fails uh, to block all foreign trade, which was a stupid idea in hindsight. And then later he figures it out and he's like, all right, well, instead of blockading all foreign trade, he says, okay, I'm just not going to trade with the UK and France. And this was called the Non-Intercourse Act. This was basically an attempt to stay out of the fight, but also at the same time stick it to both countries. And it was pretty unpopular, um, especially in New England, because New England relied super heavily on trade with Britain. It was also effectively impossible to enforce. They were still trading. No one stopped. And so James Madison now comes onto the scene as the U.S. president, and he is stuck between a rock and a hard place on trade. And it eventually leads to a war with the U.K. in 1812. Again, the War of 1812 could be its own freaking episode, so I'm going to breeze over a lot of the details to keep it short. So the U.K. dominated the Atlantic, and they took in the majority of U.S. exports. So that kind of relationship, you know, they have a lot of pull. And the U.S. merchants were also making a killing on the side trading with France. But the U.K. didn't like that very much because the U.K. is at war with France. And they had this, like, you know, trade law that said, like, if we're at war with somebody, you can't trade with them. So between all of this and the act of basically stealing U.S. citizens to fight for the British— um, the U.S. and the U.K. relationship was, like, super strained. Madison throws a Hail Mary pass to try and normalize trade with the U.K. and France. And he opens it up and says, hey, do you guys want to just trade? Let's, let's just be friends. France ends up accepting first. And Madison goes ahead and just, you know, begrudgingly accepts, you know, France's acceptance. But that pissed off the U.K., and it pushed the U.S. And the, and the U.K. to war. There was a bunch of mistakes that were made at sea between the U.S. and U.K. I'm not going to get into all of them, but between all that stuff, Congress finally decides in 1812 to declare war on the U.K. Two years later, Napoleon abdicates, which allows the Brits to focus more on the U.S. war. There was some mixed results for the U.S. I mean, we won some key victories, but I think generally speaking, you know, the UK won because they did kind of burn down Washington. Eventually, a few years later, we make up with the UK in 1815 and basically go back to the status quo on pretty much every issue that started the war in the first place, like the rights of neutral US vessels uh, and this impressment thing, you know, of the US sailors. And so the combined experiences of the early 1800s, I think it, it pushes the U.S. to start thinking twice about its, its sphere of influence, you know, in the, in the Western Hemisphere. 
at the time, many European colonies in the Americas had either one independence, right? Kind of like some of the Latin American ones did from Spain, or they were super close to it, including and in in especially pretty much all of the Spanish colonies. And in 1823, our guy who got the deals done in Europe, James Monroe, he's now the president, and he gave his seventh State of the Union speech where he talks about a new strategy for the U.S., which marked a turning point in U.S. foreign policy. And you probably know it, Henry. It's called the Monroe Doctrine. Yeah, and um, I guess the idea was pretty simple. The the new world was going to be, you know, there's going to be the new world and the old world, and there was going to be some separation, and the countries from the old world couldn't come into the new world and, you know, peddle their influence. It was going to be America-dominated. That's right. You know, it, they wanted to create that separation. <clears throat> but at the same time, the U.S. thought it should mind its own damn business and not mess around in the old world either, right? So it's like, you stay in your world, we'll stay in my world, and we'll all get along that way. And that strategy stuck around for like 100 years. And it's super key to understanding the U.S. side of the Spanish-American War. So maybe we can talk a little bit about like the lead up. Now that we got all that history out of the way, you know, we can see how both the U.S. and you know the uh, and Spain uh, were having a little bit of trouble in the beginning parts. And I really want to hone in on like what started us on the path to war. And I'll, I'll start with the U.S. So we have this Monroe Doctrine, and while it basically saw any European meddling in you know any of the newly sovereign nations of the Western Hemisphere as a threat, initially, it, it notably respected the status of existing European colonies. So in particular, uh, Cuba's status as a colony uh, of Spain, was it wasn't really in question at first under the Monroe Doctrine partly because it had existed under Spain for like 400 years and also partly because Spain was pretty weak and, you know, due to the reasons that I mentioned before. So I think it was, and you kind of pointed this out early on, Henry, you know, it was a little bit of wishful thinking that Spain would just eventually either sell Cuba to the U.S. out of necessity, kind of like how France sold us the Louisiana Purchase, or that Spain would lose control over it and Cuba would just naturally assimilate to the U.S. sphere of influence. Like those, that was the running premise. So that's why Cuba wasn't initially under the, the spotlight uh, for any kind of expansion. However, a lot of U.S. politicians were concerned that Cuba would fall into the wrong hands. You also pointed that out. And the wrong hands in this case they, that they were super afraid of are the British. That would be a problem, especially, you know, keep in mind that the British basically spanked us in 1812. So they don't, they, don't, they don't need more British people around them. In, in particular, though, I want to point out that Southern politicians in the U.S. wanted to straight up annex Cuba. There's a lot of reasons for this. Um, so first and probably primary among them, Cuba was a slave state. It ran on a sugar plantation economic model. So it's super similar to a lot of Southern economic models. And it was also just super close to the South by proximity. So 
there was also this political um, reason for it outside of just the slavery and the economic bit. You know, if you add a new slave state to the U.S. at the time, that would balance out power. Now, this is pre-Civil War here, right? And there's all these abolitionist states, and they were basically controlling the House of Representatives because they had, you know, majority city populations, as opposed to, you know, the South, which was much more rural and had fewer people. But a new slave state would offer two senators and something like nine representatives. So, you know, politically, there was an appetite to bring Cuba into the fold because it might help balance out, you know, the the coming issues <laughs> that we're going to talk about, right? So it just made a lot of sense to them. So the idea was definitely on the table. So some European, some U.S. ministers of European countries, uh, they got together and they drafted a plan to buy Cuba from Spain for $100 million. So they you know, try to run the same play as what we did uh, for the Louisiana Purchase. But notably, the difference here is that the subtext of the plan was ultimately to just take it from them by force if they rejected the offer. And, and this was called the Ostend Manifesto of 1854. And what ends up happening with this is that the manifesto ends up getting leaked and published, and it was fervently rejected by abolitionists in the U.S. and also just Europeans in general. They didn't like it. Um, and it becomes a kind of political weapon for northern politicians to use against the South. But it also, interestingly, had the effect of, of like elevating James Buchanan, uh, who was involved in writing the manifesto. And he eventually gets nominated and takes the presidency. And then he has to deal with the Cuba question. Thankfully, though, all of this takes a backseat pretty quickly because, you know, North and South tensions begin to rise pretty steadily. And seven years later, 1861, U.S. Civil War breaks out. And then seven years after that, in 1868, the first serious revolution takes place in Cuba called the Ten Years' War. I'll talk more about that later, but spoiler alert, Spain won. So in, in this time, any serious conversation about Cuba's status basically goes on ice, you know, in the U.S. until well after the Civil War ended. Now, after both civil wars, the U.S. and Cuba, um, a bunch of U.S. businessmen start monopolizing on devalued sugar markets in Cuba. And, and I'm not exaggerating here when I say monopolize. 90% of Cuban exports went to the U.S. and 40% of Cuba's imports were from the U.S. It's a huge, huge trading stake. Um, so while Spain politically ruled Cuba, the U.S. economy and the U.S. generally economically ruled it. Side note, but also kind of important for the uh, outcome of the Spanish-American War, at the same time, the U.S. had an interest in building a canal uh, to join the Atlantic with the Pacific. You might have heard of it, the Panama Canal. Um, see, back in the 1800s, you know, if you were trying to ship goods from the Atlantic to the Pacific, it was a fucking long trip around, this, around South America, and it's just epic pain in the ass. So there was a lot of business interest around you know, making that much, much easier. So much business interest that France actually gave it a whirl in 1880. They picked Panama, uh, then part of Colombia, and... Um, and I think we were supposed to, like, our idea was to do it through Nicaragua. 
That didn't uh, end up happening, of course. And France ended up hiring the same guy who built the Suez Canal, but it didn't really go so well. Um, after nine years, uh, there was malaria, yellow fever, a bunch of other random diseases, and like 20,000 people died trying to make that initial Panama Canal. So it failed. Uh, but then the U.S. picked up where the French, you know, left off, and importantly, that's an interesting. That's an that, that's an interesting story because yeah, the Suez Canal was built by the a lot of people died building the Suez Canal, but a lot of the people who died building the Suez Canal were Egyptians. Um, yeah, I think mo- most of the la- most of the labor that was used was um, was like African labor. But it sounds like if a lot of people died from malaria while building the Panama Canal, they must have been foreigners, right? You suppose that there'd be some sort of, you know, natural immunity to malaria if the workers were from well, were from uh, South America. I'm pretty or sure they America. did use South Americans um, in general hmm. because there's no way that they could have shipped over 20, like just straight up. 20, yeah, 000, you know, that's non. interesting. But what I will say is that the disease coupled with the loss of life just made it like practically impossible, at least for the French, right? Like they just didn't get it done, right? Well, you know, could have been, they could have just been more, I'm, I'm just completely speculating because I'm just interested in, in how so many people died, but mm-hmm. it's brutal building these things. Like where the Panama yeah. Canal is, it's over giant like wetland. And yep. it's like really, really difficult to build. Like you can't drive from. I think I'm right about this, but I don't think you can drive from Central America to South America just because of the wetlands. Like I don't think there's an actual road. Yeah, right? I don't, I don't know I, that either. I mean, they you I, certainly couldn't do it now because there's. I have no idea. Uh, you certainly couldn't do it just because there's a fucking canal there now. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I mean, it's there's no question that the terrain was was pretty difficult to work with. Um, but you know, eventually though, the U.S. got it done. You know, they 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 picked it up and they understood, and this is important. The U.S. understood that they would need to beef up their security to get the canal built as well as control it after it was built. Now, remember, this is post-Civil War, you know, uh, times here. The the U.S. naval power was in steady decline. I, I, I had the stats written down, but I've forgotten most of them. The number of naval vessels at the time were mostly wooden, and a lot of them were just in disrepair, or, you know, they basically threw them away, <laughs> which is crazy. Because, you know, it they, they were just not up to up to par and if they were going to create a canal super far away from the mainland uh they needed to be able to protect it because it was super easy for anyone to just you know take over they weren't going to spend all that money and just leave it alone so their idea was to build a crazy fleet of brand new steel warships to protect those business interests that they had in panama new ships means new strategies and war planning so this is where the gears start turning. When the I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but when, when the Cuban War of Independence broke out in 1895, the the officers over at the Naval War College thought it was like a good idea to start thinking about a like a full plan for an inevitable Spanish-American conflict. 
That's super important. They started drawing up plans where they were going to send like 30,000 soldiers, you know, to land, you know, from, from, um, Tampa, Florida to like Havana. And 15 days later, uh, they were going to follow it up with 25,000 volunteers. Um, and that the U S fleet, which was at the time based out of Key West would, you know, intercept any Spanish, you know, ships that were trying to, you know, reinforce, uh, defenders in Cuba. They made a plan before it was a thing, before the U.S. Maine exploded, before yellow journalism. They were they had all these fancy weapons, these new steel warships, and they were just itching to use them, right? And they had, you know, to my earlier points, a lot of interests, uh, economic interests in Cuba due to all of the sugar trade and all the, you know, uh, domination of their of their economy. And, you know, and this is less of a, an issue at this point, but, you know, there, there was pre-Civil War political machinations about taking Cuba. So, you know, when the war ultimately does break out between the United States and Spain, you know, the U.S. Navy Department already had solid plans and four years of, like, thinking over this, and they knew what to do. And all of this just helped the U.S. win, eventually, the Spanish-American War. And what I find pretty fascinating is that you can trace it back to a business interest in building a canal, which I thought was pretty interesting. Well, why don't we go—let's get into the lead-up to the to the actual war. Um, maybe we start with Spain and Cuba, the, the different revolutions that were going on. Because the revolutions in Cuba, you know, they, they, they were bad and—, and, and there was a lot of brutality going on on both sides, um, you know, just between the Cuban revolutionaries who were who were terror like they were terror groups there who were, you know, killing civilians and things like that and, and doing atrocities. And then, you know, the Spanish were very heavy handed and a lot of their heavy handed generals were like known as liberals back in Spain as well. It was kind of a weird die it was a weird dichotomy where you know they'd be like liberal progressives back in spain but they'd also be known for like you know butchering rebels um in the in the new world but i guess there's not an immediate um separation between that um just because i guess if we could see with our with with u.s policy you could be a big you could be a big liberal in domestic policies, but you could be a humongous, uh, you know, war hawk uh, in your foreign policy. But why don't we get into that? Because I think that's kind of what ignites everything. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we, we spent some time talking about like the, the, the lead up in the U.S., you know, and how we've basically already had machinations for Cuba. We already had our sights on it. We even had a plan to go to war with Spain about it. We tried to buy it. You know, um, there was a plan to just straight up take it if they didn't want to let us buy it. So that was already in the political climate. So you're right. We should talk about Spain and Cuba because, again, the, the shit that was going on between Spain and Cuba was going to create an environment where the U.S. would have an interest in being involved way before anything popped off. So, you know, in particular, let's let's focus on um, 
like like the, this relationship between Cuba and Spain. So as I mentioned before, Cuba was a part of Spain for something like 400 years um, by the by the time we're at the lead up to the Spanish-American War. And in in that brief history lesson that I gave on Spanish history, you know, we learned that Spain underwent huge amount of political upheavals in in those early parts of the 1800s you know ferdinand's abdication of the throne forced by napoleon created that political climate in spanish latin american colonies including cuba you know that was i think ripe for independence what's funny is that during the period of napoleonic rule the various juntas of the of latin america including cuba they all got a taste for sovereignty they developed nationalism but ultimately, they turned around and just supported Ferdinand and his return to power. You know, they, they were mostly just cool with popular sovereignty under Spain, and they frankly just didn't like the French. Um, and Ferdinand's return, and then that you know unilateral switch to absolutism again, you know, it 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 basically was the first of many backstabs to Latin America and very specifically to Cuba. Later on, you know, the Spanish army took back power and. Here comes the second backstab. No sovereignty for Cuba or any of the other colonies because they did good colonialism. So this lost them all of their Latin American colonies except for Cuba and Puerto Rico. And then Spain made some half-assed attempts to placate their remaining territories, Cuba and Puerto Rico, uh, with some reforms, including uh, a very poorly enforced slave trade ban. And there was this huge influx of African slaves that came into Cuba in the late 19, uh, 1850s, uh, despite like very strong political movement in favor of abolitionism. Um, e- even the slave owners in Cuba wanted to chill out on slaves because you know they had these new farming techniques and uh, a lot of modernization, and it just basically made slaves too expensive uh, to maintain. And so Cuba was suffering under heavy, heavy taxation under Spain at the time. And almost none of that taxation went to become reinvested in into Cuba. Um, I almost said Puerto Rico for a second because I feel like I'm like, history is repeating itself here. <laughs> um, anyway, businesses- very, very, uh, very similar <laughs> seriously, histories. Seriously. Um, the 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 uh, the result of like this heavy taxation was that a lot of businesses failed, especially in the very important sugar industries, which obviously created an opening for you know U.S. to step in and you know heavily monopolize those businesses. Also, military tribunals became commonplace, and all political opposition in the press was silenced. Right, so all of this like plus a growing social economic and political disparity between these wealthy Spaniards living in Cuba and Cuban native-born citizens or, or Cuban Creoles, um, that, that schism grew super, super rapidly. So by 1865, Cuban native elites, they made basically four demands to Spain. They wanted tariff reform, Cuban representation in parliament, uh, judicial equality with Spaniards in Cuba and full enforcement of that slave trade ban. They didn't get it. And that started a war in 1868 called the Ten Years' War. And what that's all about is is these wealthy Cuban plantation owners, they, they're really pissed off at this point, and they start spreading revolution. They were led by uh, Carlos Manuel de Cespedes. Cespedes? 
Chespides. I don't know. One of those. He, he was the first Cuban president, by the way. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. This war, it, it got off to a very rocky start, but it lasted for 10 years. And then the Spanish went full extermination mode on Cuba. They started arresting uh, leaders and collaborators of you know the rebellion. Obviously, they executed them. They were seizing ships, uh, especially ones that were carrying weapons. And anyone on board was just immediately killed. Um, all of the towns were ordered to surrender or be burned to the ground among God knows how many other atrocities. And... The war ended with the pact of the pact of Zen Zanhon Zanjon, uh, which the rebels begrudgingly agreed to, and and that pact promised that Cuba would have the same status under uh, the Spanish rule as Puerto Rico did at the time. It gave them some uh, political representation in the Spanish Parliament, and it it also interestingly granted amnesty for um, like political offenders, uh, and it freed a bunch of yeah, political POWs. Well, let's 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 stop for a second because I want to make sure that people are aware of the differences between Puerto Rico and Cuba at this time because Cuba, because Puerto Rico, as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, was um, it, they were granted more political power back in Spain. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you can uh, maybe spread a little bit more light on that. Yeah, what were the I differences? mean, I don't actually know what the reasoning behind it was, but for for reasons unknown to me at the moment, Puerto Rico definitely had way more representation in the Spanish Parliament, and were they were still being taxed quite a bit, but I think because Cuba was producing so much more that it became more of a target for uh, Spanish um, Spanish taxation and tariffs. Also, uh, Spain, um, Cuba, I should say, was, as I pointed out before, was engaging in way more trade with the U.S. Um, than uh, than pretty much anyone else, um, and I think that made that made them a target for tariffs. Uh, generally speaking, like Spain was not happy about the fact that they weren't getting cut in on those deals, so they just decided to tax them more. 
Um, that that wasn't necessarily the case in Puerto Rico, at least not to the same extent. And that's why I think Puerto Rico had a bit more um, leash length <laughs> under the Spanish than Cuba did. But I don't want to underscore the atrocities that, that the Spanish committed against Puerto Rico either. It was certainly not, not great. Um, so an- another thing that, that, this, um, that this Pact of San Juan did was that it guaranteed uh, everyone in Cuba the right to leave Cuba if they wanted to, which is kind of un- unprecedented. And a lot of these political prisoners that got released, they end up going to the U.S., um, and that's kind of important for later. The the piece of the the Pact of Zanjon that that created a, a peace for for a time was incredibly short lived, and you know uh, there there was pretty pretty shortly thereafter a minor war, which was really just a continuation of this ten years war. It was called the Little War. That was between eighteen seventy nine and eighteen eighty. It was a super short one. That kicked off, and it ended again with some empty Spanish promises of reform. So here comes more backstabs from Spain. And then in 1895, uh, we finally get to the Cuban War of Independence. Now, I want to pull this back a little bit. In the 17 years since that 10 years war, there there were some reforms in Cuba that were pretty radical. Um, but obviously not enough to satisfy the Cubans or to turn around the Cuban economy in any meaningful way. They did end up abolishing slavery in 1886, and that kind of backfired a little bit because slaves were free to farm and you know work for a wage instead of for free. Um, and this had obvious economic impacts that, the, that at the time, the Cuban economy just wasn't ready to deal with that. And... At the same time, the Spanish are simultaneously bleeding them dry with taxes and tariffs, and they weren't reinvesting it back into Cuba. So it kind of set up, like they got what they wanted with you know the, the abolition of slavery, but it created a new problem, and it was exacerbated by an existing problem of taxes and tariffs. One of the most influential Cuban political activists, activists uh, Jose Marti, he ends up finding his way to the U.S. after being exiled twice. Uh, over there, he links up with a bunch of other prominent Cuban activists, and he drafts the what's called the Manifesto of Monte Cristi in support of yet another Cuban revolution. And there were a few main points uh, and arguments that he made um, on how it should go. So he said that the war should be fought by both white and black people. And that was interesting because black people in this particular war that he was proposing were particularly crucial for victory because they're they're now freed and you know they, that would increase their ranks and and give them a fighting chance. He also said that any Spaniards who didn't get in the way that they shouldn't be killed. Which is also interesting because it's not like you know, at least the the idea of it wasn't just just brutally murder all the Spaniards, right? Um and also super important uh, for the economic reasons is that the private property shouldn't be destroyed, uh, especially rural plantations, because after the war, they're going to need to be able to revitalize the economy. And, you know, if you destroy all the crops, then that's not great. So uprisings started on February 24th in 1825. 
And just like all of the other Cuban revolutions, it was a kind of tough at first for the rebels in Cuba. This time, though, it was particularly tough because they lacked weapons. Uh, private ownership of weapons was banned after the Ten Years' War, so you know it's kind of hard to kind of hard to fight a revolution without any guns. And so the Cubans at this point relied on guerrilla tactics to gain the upper hand. Um, and this is where a lot of the uh, what what you could define as atrocities were committed by you know the Span um, the Cuban revolutionaries, right? They they were they were doing a lot of crazy shit. They didn't have IEDs, but you can imagine that they were doing that with like random booby traps and and other crazy things. And so, you know, that's obviously not going to be enough to win a war. So they they started arming themselves by raiding Spanish depots. Also, fun fact, they try to smuggle in weapons from abroad. A lot of the times it came from the U.S. Something like 60 times. They tried 60 times to bring in weapons and only pulled it off once. Every other time, it was either intercepted by you know the U.S. or uh, by Spain, and you know the Spanish really didn't like that the rebels were seeing some success, um, and they basically went full extermination mode again. So there were frequent executions. In particular, there was a, a practice that that comes up a lot in yellow journalism, which was the mass exile of civilians to um, either certain areas or, or cities or camps, encampments. And that created really, really inhumane living conditions that killed something like 150,000 people, which at the time was like 10% of the total population in Cuba. And that's where you get a lot of the horror stories starting to go around in the US uh, and especially in, in yellow journalism. Now, there was a lot of truth to a lot of these things, um, but also yellow journalism definitely trumped it up a lot. And, you know, your point earlier, you know, provide the pictures and I'll provide the war. You know, all they needed was uh, a, a lead and they often didn't cross reference those leads and they just reported fucking whatever, whatever they want, whatever sounded sensational. There was still a lot of terrible shit happening though. Skipping ahead a little bit, the USS Maine is blown up in Havana Harbor and that officially kicks off the war. And alleged by what? A Spanish scuba diver is the one who did it or something <laughs> like that? It's some really dumb story. Oh, man. I can't wait to, to do the second part of this show because there are so many interesting theories about how the USS Maine exploded. I think I'll have some fun with that in the next one. But yeah, one of them was like a, a diver. Another one was like a torpedo. Another one was like uh, a shelling. A lot of people said mines. Some people said it was just like gunpowder on the ship that randomly exploded. Uh, man, there there was several investigations around this, up to and including like fairly recently. I think there was one in the 70s that concluded that it was just a spontaneous combustion of of um, of uh, uh, ammunition in the uh, in the front part of the ship. I don't know. I don't want to get too deep into that. That'll be a fun bit for the next bit, but. I just want to kind of tie all this together. So what did we learn today, Henry? We learned that there was a very complicated history in both the U.S. and in Spain and in Cuba. And the general idea is that Spain was incredibly weak by the time of the Spanish War, Spanish-American War. They made a lot of fucking mistakes around their colonies. And generally speaking, 
their um, their inability to let the Cubans do their own thing, even under you know under the Spanish flag, really just promoted more revolutionaries in Spain. On the other side, the U.S. had lots of motivations to want to be involved in Cuba, whether you know economically, which was uh, prevalent after the Civil War, whether that's politically, uh, because you know adding a new territory in the South would have been useful, uh, whether that's militarily, because now they've got a bunch of new ships and let's test them out. Uh, the, the point, though, is that these these elements brought us to the point where a war could happen. And, you know, the obvious question becomes like, if the USS Maine didn't blow up, would we have gotten into the war? And, you know, maybe we can talk about that a little bit on the next go around, but we already had the plans to do it, right? If it wasn't the USS Maine, it was probably going to be something else. And also when we talk more about the actual uh, war, we can talk about how you know the U.S. was supplying both sides <laughs> of that conflict, um, which is you know on brand for the U.S. Which is nothing, which is par for the course. But right, it's and you know something that I think we could touch on in future episodes, and I think it's it's a it's a real interesting group. So the Cubans historically. It, I find the politics of Cuba very interesting and and, and uh, difficult to understand in some regard because I think most American Cubans are, are pretty conservative because they're anti-communist and things like <laughs> that, you know? Yeah. They have a strong anti-communist bent. But, man, I, I don't know what the political dynamics are in Cuba itself, how many people like the regime or not, how many people are, you know, constantly trying to to uh, defect to the United States. I know a lot of baseball players try to. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but why wouldn't you? If you could throw the ball 102 miles per hour, then why wouldn't you try to defect and play in the major leagues and make – hundreds of billions of dollars uh throwing the baseball fast <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but i guess where i guess is this the origin of cuba's revolutionary spirit because that revolution seems to only been there was only a temporary hiatus for about 50 years until it happened again, until yep. there was a revolution against the United States in reality. You know, it was it was against Batista, but Batista was a U.S. puppet. So Yeah, I mean, I mean that, it's, it's, you could trace it back to, to, to Spanish, um, uh, the, the overthrow of the monarchy um, in Spain. Because at that point, that's when a lot of these Latin American colonies, including Cuba, start to develop a sense of liberal ideologies and, um, and nationalism uh, and ideas of sovereignty. And then basically the entire history tracks from that point of 
repeated, you know, mistakes and backstabs of Spain against Cuba. You know, I mean, they they definitely kept pouring gasoline on that flame. You know, they Spain did it to themselves. Another in, in a future episode, and I've had this idea for a while. I want to do a episode on Cuban commandos, sure, because the Cuban Revolutionary Army was used by the Soviets to do a lot of dirty work for them. Mm-hmm. So they would send the Cubans in to like train. Uh, not only countries in Latin America, but they would be doing special operations in, in uh, like Africa. So the the Cubans trained the uh, Ethiopian communist government. Like they trained their military. Um, it, it, it's a real interesting history because these guys were some of the best units um, that were allied with the Soviet Union, the, the Cuban the Cuban commandos. So well, yeah, I mean, they just had just future. decades of, of warfare and, and civil war and revolution. I mean, they're, I mean, talk about the epitome of, of the revolution, you know, I mean, obviously Russia started communism, but these guys were, you know, fighting the good fight, so to speak, well before anyone had any ideas about communism. Well, or at least, uh fighting the fight before you know the soviet union the soviet union uh was taken over by the bolsheviks yeah okay exactly i think we wrap this episode up now we're about an hour and 20 minutes into recording and i think we got a good starting point of where the origins of the war are and i guess to just add to what your uh, thesis is is that i i agree that you know the media can a lot of times war is almost predetermined by by you know government and policy and and um, big power politics and the media's main role is not necessarily starting the war but to sell the war to the public and in the case it, it was kind of a perfect storm in the late 1800s where th- we're wrapping up this huge nationalization project and and i think people and the public were um you know willing to hear a patriotic message and that's where yellow journalism came in to capitalize that and um you know show camaraderie with you know fellow freedom fighters and and um you know further kind of show the barbarities of the old world um and also just the technology of it as well. I, mm-hmm. I think that the under, because I mean, people have been lying and, or sensationalizing uh, news stories forever, but it was just the the way that they were able to communicate information. They were able to do it very quickly and, and provide these up to date. You can, you could look at the, read your local paper and get an update on, on things that were developing in the war on a day to day, like, like Twitter, you know? Um, I mean, a telegraph was used had been used for a while, but I think by the 1890s or so, they really kind of um, figured out how to use it in a newsroom. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll end it with that. Thanks for listening to another episode of Bro History. It is a pleasure having you listen to our show. Make sure that you rate and review the show. That is the number one way to help us grow. Um 
rate on Apple, rate on Spotify. We're doing an episode, our uh, 250th episode, which is coming up soon. We're going to read some of the reviews and we're going to read the positive ones and the negative ones. And I think it should be fun. So do that. And if you want to support us, support us on our Patreon. Um, You'll get access to our Slack channel. All right. It is late and very hot. Anything else to add, Danny? Yeah. I just underscoring that uh, episode when we hit 250, we're going to be talking about those uh, reviews and, and starting to see some come in. So uh, the only thing I ask is be honest, uh, but also maybe be specific. Tell us exactly what you're feeling in 140 characters or less. <laughs> All right. Okay. Peace, guys. Peace. Spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and more time actually watching and playing what you want with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts.